Hello and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. My name is Delton, I'll be your host this evening, and then with me today is my lovely wife, as per usual, the yellow player as well, Haley. You mean I'm always, or at least usually, lovely? Uh, sometimes. I'm lovely right now. You're lovely right now. Yes! <laughs> Welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. This is a tabletop games podcast where we talk about board games, card games, tabletop games, RPGs, and all that sort of stuff. We also like to drink beer and hang out with friends. So if this is your first time listening, that's what this is about. You're our friend now. You are our forever friend. Friend. <laughs> Let's go ahead and crack open the first beer for the evening. I think it's a good time. Just nice, easy in the intro. What are we drinking? All right, so the first beer today is going to be the heftiest of the two. There's a local brewing company in Oklahoma called Roughtail. This is the Roughtail IPA. I picked it out because Roughtail, they make pretty good stuff. They usually tend to lean on the hoppy side of things. And so their IPA is going to be very hoppy, but their label design for this can is awesome, I think. And I will post that to Twitter. Remind me to do that after this podcast, and I'll post it. You're going to have to listen to this podcast when you're editing it to remember that. Most likely, yes. Because I am not going to remember. I actually need to listen to this podcast to remind myself to remind you to upload that after this podcast. That was the most weird way. It's fine. It makes sense. I guess so. It's a beer. It's an IPA. I'm trying to find an alcohol content, and I can't. Alcohol content? Yes. That's essentially what this can is telling me. So, what? Did you find it? That doesn't say it. That says 12 ounces of ale. And then that's the international bittering units between 45 and 55. Anyway, we don't know <laughs> what alcohol content this beer is. Generally, IPAs are between 6 and 8%, though. I think so. So it's probably closer to 6, I would guess, if they're not marking it. Who knows? But let's go ahead and crack Speaking it. Speaking of which, we need to tell them the good news. What's the good news? Of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What? Just kidding. The good news of the beer law changes this week. Yes. So as of October 1st, we're recording this on the 4th. Uh, October 1st, Oklahoma finally now can have cold storage and Walmart and Target can now and like big stores like that can officially sell wine and high point beer. Who was it? Benjamin Franklin who said that proof that God loves us is wine. That quote is attributed to him. I believe that wine is the correct one. There's one that people change it into beer. I mean, that, I think that's incorrect. Both but I don't are remember. correct in my book. I don't remember which one is actually true, if either. But yeah, this week we can now buy high point beer, which high point means higher than 3.2% alcohol. Before this week, 90%, and I'm not just making up a random statistic, I'm literally saying 90% of 3.2 or lower alcohol by volume sales were sold in Oklahoma. And this week, a lot of places or companies have stopped making it. Right now, Utah and what was the other state? I, I don't remember. It. I think it, I know it's Utah for a fact, still sells three point. I believe Missouri as well, which is ironic because Missouri has some lax liquor laws. And I, I don't think it's 90%. I think it's like 75. No, no, it was 90%. Was it? Yeah. It's a ridiculous number, though. Like a ton of alcohol that's not very much alcohol gets sold in Oklahoma. So awesome beer laws finally coming into play. When you can buy Dogfish Head in Target, it's amazing. So it was before the amendment came along that changed it to where you could buy, uh, you had to wait until you're 21 to buy alcohol. This was like, so that happened in the late 70s, early 80s, right? I think so. So back in the 50s, in certain states, women could actually buy alcohol age 18, where men had to wait until they were 21. 
Makes sense. But basically, by the time you're 18, anybody could buy 3.2 beer because it was called near beer. It's because it's so watered down. So here's a fun statistic. Do you know why Bud Light, Miller Light, uh, what are some of the other lights? Michelob. Coors Light. Light, Coors Light, Keystone Light. The reason they're light is literally because they mix it with water. They brew the beer and they mix it with water to make the light version. I don't understand drinking watered down beer. So I just, I just don't get it. It's fine. If you like it, you know, power to you, do what you want, but it's just not good. Now we can buy the good stuff at midnight in Walmart in our Elmo jammy pants. But we can't buy it on Sundays. Except in Walmart. Can you? Yeah, you can buy it anywhere in Walmart. That's what the, so the Lost Ogle that I write for, um, Lucas, one of the other contributors, wrote an article about how the liquor laws will affect um, like liquor stores and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And you can actually buy wine and High Point beer on Sundays in Walmart, but you can't buy it in liquor stores. That's the dumbest thing. Oklahoma has had dumb, like, Prohibition-era laws for a long time, and it's nice that they're changing, but we still need... I mean, we still have dry counties. Well, not anymore. Since this law passed, mm-hmm. uh, we I believe we don't have dry counties anymore because Washington County, where my parents are, was technically a dry county. And so that means that establishments, it doesn't mean that there's no alcohol at all. It just means that establishments could not sell anything more than 3.2. So like my uncle had a bar out there and he could not sell beer and it was higher than 3.2. Well, now that 3.2 is no longer being sold anywhere because places aren't making it or shipping it to Oklahoma, those dry counties had to have quick measures. I think it was back last fall, they actually had the referendums to make it to where they're no longer dry counties. So we had Five dry counties, I think. I wrote that Ogle article about it last year. I wrote a Lost Ogle article about dry counties in Oklahoma and what that really means and why we have them and her to dirt to dirt to dirt to dirt and how you couldn't get a decent margarita in Hinton, Oklahoma. But now that should change with these new liquor laws because the counties that were dry counties did referendums to no longer be dry counties. Those are the awesome beer law changes that we've had this week. Praise Jesus. So we can now go to Walmart and Target and buy wine and good beer, which is really nice. Your craft stuff will still have to find at the local liquor store, which is a good thing because I probably plan on buying most of my stuff from the liquor store still because I like the lady who owns the liquor store by my house. We're on a first name basis. I know the first names of her cats because she is a nice lady and she hires only teachers. Yeah, the liquor store by our house hires teachers because they know they can't make enough money being a teacher in Oklahoma. And so they give them a place to have another job, which is really awesome. Plus, plus they're all really nice. But yes, want, want our teachers don't get paid well. Anyway, what's next, Delton? Uh, i'm trying to think of what else has been going on this week we're super excited for token con this weekend it is oklahoma city's first ever tabletop convention uh there is a oklahoma gaming community is that right i really don't keep up oklahoma board game community oklahoma board game community and some of the guys from that uh the main people who run that have started this i believe along with some help of others but i think they're capping around 300 tickets there's still some available Somehow they got Rodney Smith from Watch It Played to come down as like the guest of honor. So that's going to be cool. He's a nice man. He's super nice. So I'm, hopefully we'll get to play with him. I know they had like tickets for playing with Rodney Smith and I missed the email on those. So that kind of sucks. Like we both got the emails. I don't know how we missed the tickets for Rodney Smith. And we also missed the sign up to like actually present and have a booth, I think. Well, that was our own fault for just delaying ourselves. Yeah. But yes, we missed like the deadline and all that. It's going to be cool, though, because we have a lot of friends going, and so it's just going to be two days of playing games, and it's nice that it's in Oklahoma City because we can drive for 20 minutes to the airport, which is, it's outside the airport at the hotels, and game and play and talk to people, and then we can drive up to home to have lunch, take a nap, and then go back, 
It's going to be nice. I really hope this isn't Rodney Smith's first time in Oklahoma because I there are certain parts of our state that I really like. We have some really beautiful areas. Oklahoma City is starting to get a hop in downtown, midtown area. It's really been revitalized. However, the Oklahoma that we know and love that is right by the airport is the armpit of America. It's pretty close to it, yeah. There is nothing out there. There's like five bars where you will get stabbed. And there's an IHOP and there's an embassy suites that you can buy meth behind the dumpsters, I'm pretty sure. That's pretty accurate representation of the hotel area right there south of I-40 by our airport. It's so bad. Like, that is the one bad thing. Poor Rodney Smith. I'm going to keep my thoughts. <laughs> it should be a good time, though. We're super stoked for Token Con. Uh, and we hope that it goes well this year and they keep having it every year after this because it's nice to have something in Oklahoma because Oklahoma, I feel like, is always devoid of anything fun. Like, they have BGG Con in Dallas. You can probably go up to Kansas and do cooler stuff than you can in Oklahoma City in terms of events. So it's nice that we're getting something that can grow and take off in the next five, ten years. Yeah, I'm really excited for it, too. And, you know, it's capped at 300, which is very small compared to... Gen Con. Every, everything else. Like, it is literally 0.5% of what Gen Con would have been. But at the same time, that means it's a more intimate affair. That means we can get to know people a little better and hopefully make some better connections there. I'm really looking forward to meeting people and to connect with people we already know from Twitterland. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be really nice. Is Nick Shipley going to be there? I believe Nick will be there, yes. Hot dogs. And a whole bunch of other people we talked to on Twitter from Oklahoma. And Gates. And Gates will be there. She's going to stay with us. Gates is going to come down from her abode in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we're so happy to have her for three whole days. It's going to be a good time. A super good time. Aside from that this week, there's not been a lot going on. I re-downloaded Eternal, the card game on my phone, which if you like Hearthstone or any kind of card game on your phone, I highly recommend Eternal from Dire Wolf Digital. It's very, very, very good. I really like it because it's closer to magic than Hearthstone, but it's still doing things that only a digital game can do. So that's been a lot of fun. I played that. And then I finally downloaded PUBG on my phone today. And I played one game at work, which I shouldn't have because it took forever. The hell is PUBG? Uh, it's the original Fortnite, basically. It's not goofy and cartoony. And Are there dances? The, no, it is more like, you know, focused on actual trying to look real and military and everything. There's dances in the military. They have galas. Thank you. Thank you. But no, it's the original game that Fortnite got its idea from, basically. And they have a phone version now, and I could get it on my Android. And it's pretty fun. I won my first game, which that was cool. But that's been it. That's been this week. It's been a good week. It's been a good week. It started October, and we didn't get to play many games the past few months, but we started out October, I think, on the right foot with yesterday's game. Oh, here's the door. Uh, uh. It's straight ahead. It's it's a game. So this beer is actually really good. I'm fairly impressed with this IPA. I like Rough Tail. I've never really had a problem with them, except they usually do too many hops. I feel like this is toned down a bit on the hops, which really helps for me. I like hops. I like hops a lot. They have Hoptometrist, which is one of my favorite beers of all time. It is also like 9% alcohol, so if you drink a 16-ounce can, which they sell them in, you will take a nap. Me and Haley both get really sleepy after like a beer or two. It takes me like four to five, maybe six before I wake up again, which is a horrible number. Wine, I can like do science and write articles and be a functioning human being doing laundry. Beer, I'm going to take a nap. 
she will definitely take a nap. All right, so for today's game, we're going to talk about one of the games we picked up at Gen Con this year, which is Lowlands, or Lowlands. I believe since it's one word, it's Lowlands, but that's okay. That's one of those, I guess, phonetic things. Would that be correct? It's a phonetic thing? Yeah, I think so, or regional, dialectical. Dialectal. Dialectic. Remember, dialectical is the, like, argument style, or uh, speech style. Dialectal is actually when it's a dialect. My name's Dalton. I have a degree in humanities. No, I literally figured this out the other day because I, I said it. I remember. Uh, I, I was so upset. I still have to make fun of you. It's my duty as a wife. So last time on the podcast, and Allison pointed this out, by the way, Allison is our awesome friend and Patreon backer. If you would like to be like her and back us on Patreon, getting a shout out on the podcast, put at the end of any videos or shout it out on Twitter. It is patreon.com slash malthousegames. I don't know. Be like Allison. That's pretty high to live up to. She's pretty great. It really is. But Allison pointed out in the last episode, I said the day drug on. That's technically incorrect. It should be the day dragged on. However, it is a dialectal thing in the southern region of the United States to say drug on, and it is acceptable because it is part of the dialect. Therefore, I am technically not incorrect. It's a, it's a technical thing. It's okay. I win. In 50 years, they're going to have a minor at colleges based on Delton's <laughs> definition book. So, like, you can minor in German. You can minor in Spanish. You can minor in Delton's definition book. Yes, my definition book will be awesome with all the tuggles and just everything in between. So, it's good. All right. The game today is Lowlands. This has been brought to the United States by Z-Man Games. It was originally published by Feuerland, or Fireland Games, which I believe it says it is made in Poland, and I'm not sure if that's a German or a Polish company. The original game design is by Claudia and Ralph Partenheimer. Game development by Inga Koitman and Frank Heron. So I'm going to pronounce his name. Editing is Johannes Grimm and Ryan Palfreyman. Oh, sorry, Palfreyman. There we go. Layout is Christoph Tisch, which this rulebook has a very nice layout. It does say that the Z-Man team had a different layout by James Meyer, and so I don't know if that's their own thing, if they tweaked it, but it's a very good layout in the book. And then graphic design and art is Andrea Burkhoff with Martin Kleinke. So there you go. There's the names. This game is about... Uh, let, me, let me just read the front. How's that? I'll read the front. You have to make the sheep noises as you go. No, there's no sheep noises. Meh. There are sheep in the game. That's why she's doing this. On the wave-battered coast of the North Sea, hard-working folk make a living by the sweat of their brow. Under constant threat of storm and flood, communities rally together to build dikes that keep the rising tide at bay. But every citizen constructing a dike is one fewer citizen tending flocks and maintaining the family farm. The residents are torn between selflessness and self-interest, and only those who can strike this delicate balance can thrive in the harsh landscape. So this takes place in the Netherlands over by the North Sea, where the land is below sea level. The game is focused around you being a farmer, and as the different players are trying to have the most sheep and sell sheep and tend their farm and get points, they're also, as a community, trying to build the dike to keep the water levels from flooding into their fields. So that's the theme of this game. Now, there is a cool little symbol at the bottom of the rulebook, and it has a picture of Uva Rosenberg, one of, I'm going to say, my favorite designer, and one of Haley's. He's absolutely my favorite designer. Yeah, so we're a big Uva Rosenberg fan, and it says next to him, this seal signifies... Hold on, hold on. Next to Michael, because we're going to talk about this later. 
Yes, we'll talk about this at another episode. Because his board game has totally destroyed every single board game on my favorites list. We're going to leave it at that as a small, slight spoiler for an upcoming game review slash podcast, because this game deserves both. Stay tuned! Stay tuned for that. So, it says this seal signifies that Uwe Rosenberg recommends this game for fans of his work. Uwe Rosenberg himself studied this game and contributed during the development process. That's exciting because we're big fans of his. So I'm going to do this from memory, and I'm going to try to do it fairly quickly, even though I feel like we're already running long on the podcast. I don't know that we are, but that's okay. So Y'all, Dalton's hands are going crazy. You know he's going to get into this. My hands are in the air because I have to think in my head. He should be flying away too, or Hummingbird should be flying away. Get out of here. Get out of here. Okay. So the way the game works is every player has their own farm board. They have four houses, some fences on their income board, and then they have three farmers with an action point rating of one of them has an action point rating of two, one of them has three, and one of them has four. On your farm board, you have five actions you can take. You can either build upgrades to your farm, different buildings, different features, or buy end-of-the-game scoring tiles. You can contribute to the dike by spending resources and trying to build the dike up, either to catch the water or to get ahead of it. You can spend an action to build or move fences. You can spend an action to buy or sell sheep. And you can spend an action to draw resource cards. So the way the game progresses is you lay out some uh, cards that represent the flow of water coming in. Now, these cards vary. There's two types, ones that can be numbered one, two, or three, and ones that can be numbered four, five, or six. There's only one six. When it hits, it hurts. However, it only happens once. So that's good. Now, that's what she said. Each of these actions, thank you, is a very in-depth action. So I think this is where this game for me diverges a little bit from an Uva Rosenberg game. Where in a Uva Rosenberg game, you take an action and it's all fairly simple from there. This game for me had a couple more complexities, and I'm mainly referencing the dike action, building a dike, which I'll explain. So you buy a tile, you buy the tile, you have to have a certain action point value farmer you use to buy it. You have to spend a certain kind of resource, and sometimes it has a certain requirement on your board if it goes on top of a tree or has to cover a lake or has to cover a bush, which are all depicted on this farm board. Now, your farm board does start with two squares fenced in with two sheep. So you do start out with a little bit as well as some money and stuff like that. The building the dike action is the one that's the complicated one because you put a farmer of a certain level. So let's say you put your level four farmer on there. He's got four action point value. I think that's what it's called, action point value. If you put your four, level four farmer on that, contribute to the dike action. You can then spend resources to move the dike resource track up the amount of resources that you spend. Now, if it hits the end, you then succeed in building the next level of the dike. For every card you have spent, you move your token up the dike track, which is its own sort of point track where it does matter if you are ahead or behind other people, and it does matter what you've passed, and it potentially can give you huge amounts of points at the end of the game, depending on if the dike has flooded or not during the game. So there's a couple little intricacies there. And if you finish building a dike piece, you can then switch the resource. So if you want to build a level of the dike, you have to spend one type of resource. There is stone, brick, and wood. So if you build with wood, you have to build all four or six or however many, because it changes depending on the number of players. You have to build all of it until it's built with one resource. If you build two, 
and it's not complete and you stop your turn from there, your opponent then, you have to ask for help, unless it's a two-player, then there's a modification that you don't have to. You can ask the market deck by spending money. But you can ask your opponent to help. They then have to spend the same resource. So if you spent wood to start that section of the dike, they have to spend wood to continue adding to that section of the dike. So there's some little things with the dike contribution action that matter. Uh, so it's a little strange, but that's that action. You then have moving and building fences. It's just like what it sounds. You can move a fence for one of the action points. So if you put your three farmer, you can use one to move a fence anywhere on your board, one to spend a single resource to buy a new fence, and then you can use your third point to spend another resource of the same type to build another fence. So if you go to build three fence pieces, not move any, you have to spend the same resource on all three. So all three wood, all three stone, all three brick, depending on what you do. The next one is buying and selling sheep. You can buy or sell sheep to the little market. The market has two or three rows, depending on how many players, and they're different widths, whether it's two or three or four, depending on how many players. You will sell sheep or buy sheep from one single row, and it's one sheep per action. And the value of the sheep, as well as the value of your dike points, are determined by when the dike fails in certain points in the game or if it holds the water at certain points in the game. So that can fluctuate. So your sheep start, I think, at a value three. They can go up to five or down to one or two. I don't remember. So you buy or sell sheep. It's kind of a way of doing income. Like get yourself some money or get prepared for your sheep to breed, which give you free sheep because they have babies. Then you can sell those sheep kind of thing. Then the last action is drawing cards. If you put your two action point value farmer on the draw cards action, you draw two cards. Nice and simple. You can go from the face up four market cards or from the deck. Either way. So those are the only five actions in the game. So buying things, contributing to the dike, moving or building fences, buying or selling sheep, and drawing cards. That's it. But then you have these three different values to consider. Something I do like is if you put your four value farmer on the fence action, only build two pieces of fence, you can then use the other two leftover action points to draw two cards, which is very helpful. So that's the only way you do your actions in the turn. And then after that, you've got a, a phase where you take income, your sheep breed, you reset the sheep market, and you do some little things here and there, and you draw the next flood card to see how much the water is coming in and if your dike is going to hold. You do this, you do a phase of actions, a phase of upkeep, a phase of actions, a phase of upkeep, and then the tide phase where you actually test the dike and see if it holds. You do that three times, and then there's one final test of the dike, and then the game's over after that. Now, if the dike ever fails, you get a token that is a, I can't think if it's a flood token. Is that what it's called? A uh, breach oh, token. Breach token. There you go. Dike breach token. If you get a breach token at the end of the game for every breach token that you have, if you are not the person who has contributed the most to the dike, you then lose a sheep per each breach token you have. Now, if you don't have enough sheep, you must pay the money value that those sheep are worth. So if the sheep are valued at four at the end of the game and you don't have enough, you have to pay four coins for every single sheep you don't have. Coins are a one for one point value at the end of the game. So one coin is worth one point. So that's big. If you can't pay the money, you still just directly lose points. So that can be brutal if you get a lot of those dike breach tokens and you don't have enough sheep to cover what you're going to lose when it actually floods. Or if you just get one like breach Haley. token and you get really sad, which we'll get to in a minute. I think that's a pretty good like overview of what the game does. You're getting sheep, you're expanding your farm, 
you're going to build stuff that tells you you can store sheep on watering holes on the uh, the, the lakes and stuff like that. It's going to tell you that you get so many points at the end of the game for however many trees are not within your pasture, so not fenced in. Uh, if you uncover on your income board, whenever you build a building on your farm, you put a house on top of that building. So you can only build four wooden buildings where you can have an unlimited number of the green features. But with those four buildings, once you build the second, third, and fourth one, you then uncover something that contributes during your income phase, whether it's drawing more cards, gaining the ability to move one of your laborers. So you have these little workers that you move around to make the actions more appealing. So they can make the action where you draw cards, you can draw one extra card, things like that. And when you build fences, the fences also uncover more income and more actions and things you can do. And by things you can do, I mean, again, it's laborers, it's gaining coin during the income phase, drawing new cards, things like that. But really, that's all of the game. It it doesn't sound crazy. There are some small, intricate rules, especially with building pieces of the dike and dealing with some of the different things. Like whenever the dike, if it doesn't hold during a tide phase, then the people who have contributed the least get a benefit of more coin to help them basically contribute more. But if the dike holds, then the people who are in the lead get more coin because they spent the time to make sure that things don't fall apart, essentially. So there's some little intricacies here and there that are kind of strange to grab onto for a second, but once you play through a third of the game, you've got it. And it's really simple. It's been really fun. We've only played it the one time now, so we can't have like a full super, super, super in-depth thing. However, from what we've played, we loved it. It was really, really good. It was very good. It's been really neat, close to an Uva Rosenberg game, especially with the sheep and their breeding, and you can sell them and buy them, and different things like that. I really like the teeter-totter of the game that Delton was talking about. The balance between letting the dike be built, as well as making your dike worthwhile. Because if you have a perfect score with the dike the entire game, by the end of the game, all those points you have built up for maintaining the dike are worth nothing. And so at at least once, you have to let the dike fail. If you do not let the dike fail at least one time, you get zero points for your work in the dike. And so you have to balance that. You have to, at times, know, is it okay to let it slide this time? No, am I going to focus my energy on building sheep this time, on building at my farm this time? Because you only have three actions to choose. And it's very tempting to build at the dike every single time because you're like, oh, snap, I don't want to lose any sheep. Oh, snap, I want to get some good points for this dike. But if you do, if you do not let the dike fail, you will get no points for your effort. And so that creates this awesome, like I said, teeter-totter effect where you have to balance. You know, is it okay to let a couple of sheep die, which is not ever, and I'll get to that. Or is it okay to continuously build up the dike and not really think of anything else? Yeah, it's very, very difficult because I was going for dike points. I was thinking, all right, I bought the tile that makes it when I take the dike action, as long as I have lakes on my farming board that aren't within the pasture, I get bonuses to how many actions I can use, and how, which means how many resources I can pay toward completing the dike. And so I was focusing on building a bunch of dike pieces. Well, after a bit, I noticed, okay, I've built all this dike stuff up. Now the dike is worth zero unless I let it flood to get me one point for each of my dike points. So the dike point track, uh, every two spaces essentially are worth the same value. So the first two spaces are worth zero. The second two spaces are worth one. uh, The next two spaces are worth two and so on. 
And so I was built up to the 10th space, but they were worth no points at all. And I was like, all right, I got to let this dike fail because I have to get some points for those. So what happens is as the dike succeeds, the track moves up, meaning the sheep are now more valuable, but the dike is less valuable. But if the dike fails a lot, it goes the opposite direction on this track, and the dike becomes more valuable to have points in it, but the sheep become less valuable. And so it's this really hard struggle of, do I let it fail? Do I keep it going? And especially when building the dike affects everyone. So if I'm the only one building the dike because I don't want it to flood and someone doesn't contribute and lets it flood, then it can hurt my strategy, help theirs potentially, but also everyone's going to be affected by it in some way. It'll hurt your sheep. It'll hurt your sheep at the end of the game, not during, but those tokens do matter and they can build up. And they can kill your sheep. No, we'll talk about that in a bit. I'm salty. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, she's very salty. But the game has been really cool. It's got this, this like Haley said, a teeter-totter effect of how much do I invest in the dike? Do I let it flood? If I let it flood and I get these tokens, can I afford that many sheep? Like, how do I get that many sheep to make sure that I can lose them at the end of the game because the dike floods if it floods at the end, unless you build it up at the end to not flood? And so there's all these things of the dike depends on your opponents as well as you but your strategy depends on them as well. And so it's a really strange thing to focus on. I had some trouble figuring out the strategy, figuring out how to approach it. And I feel like it's a game that is going to take repeat plays before I completely understand basically which spots to dedicate to, to figure out really how to approach it. What do I do early? What do I do late? Um, One thing I really have very much enjoyed about it too is you only have three workers, those three farmers, of value two, three, and four. Everybody has the same. You never gain more, you never lose any. It's the values that you really have to work with. And if one farmer goes on a space, you cannot put another farmer on that space for that action round until everyone uses all their farmers and you go to the upkeep phase and you do your income and your breeding and all of that. Then you pick your farmers up and the next action phase, you get to put them all back out. So you really have to think, okay, do I want to just use two actions? Uh, contributing to the dike? Or do I just want to use my two to build fences so I can have my three and four for other things? Or should I use my four to build fences, build the two I need, and then draw two cards off the remaining action points? And so there's some fun decision making in the game, and it always kind of keeps you involved with it and keeps you thinking of a strategy, thinking of a way to adapt and trying to watch what your opponents do and say, okay, they built the dike up and they used wood. I need some wood if I want to finish that dike out, and I only have to do two spaces, so if I put my two on the dike spot, I can build that dike. But if I do my three, I can then draw another card, putting me closer to buying one of the features or buildings to put in my farm. So there's nice decision-making, nice strategy, and plenty to observe to keep you involved in the game and really keep it moving, and I'm just excited to explore it more and really dive in and figure out the strategies. Yeah, there's really a lot to keep you engaged with this game. Except if you have... Analysis paralysis. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. Before we get into my biggest problem in gaming, let's crack our next beer. Haley, you want to introduce this beer? This is a Newcastle Ale that I bought for my friend Mackenzie's bachelorette party 
JK, no, I bought this for my friend Sarah's bachelorette party, but I only drank two, so I brought it to my friend Mackenzie's bachelorette party because I had two bachelorette parties in a row, and I don't drink a lot of beer when I'm at those functions because I need to stay sober to keep everybody safe. This is a brown ale, and to me it tastes like hazelnuts, but Delton says it doesn't because he lies and doesn't have good taste buds. But it's a very light ale. It is about 4-2%, I would say. You can sell it in the liquor store. However, you're not going to get a whole lot of alcohol for your buck, which that's fine. It's a really light sipper, which is why I brought it to functions where I generally need to stay at least coherent to my surroundings. But it also tastes very good. And like I said, it tastes like a hazelnut. It is a good solid brown ale. Compared to craft beer and some high-end beer, it's a little watery to me. A thinner texture. It doesn't have that thick mouth feel that some beers do. Better than Keystone. Much better than anything's better than Keystone. Look at you and your personalized glass. Delton, where'd you get that glass? The glass I'm using right now has my name laser etched into it, which was an amazing bachelor gift. Bachelor gift from the bachelor parties. I hope I was you're thinking. not a bachelor. I am not a bachelor. Neither is Zach anymore. Hey. He's so, married. I was a groomsman for my friend Zach. Hello, Zach. I know he'll be listening to this, at least at some point. He's my friend. He's our friend. And he got all of us groomsmen a beer glass with our name, so for me, Delton Brack, laser etched into it, as well as a tie clip with our initials on the backside. So super awesome. I am now drinking out of it because why wouldn't I drink out of my own glass? It already has my name on it. It's yours, just like the Democrat cat glass is mine. Definitely. So the topic today ties in pretty well with Lowlands, I believe. I guess we should have finished that with that was Lowlands from Z-Man Games. Anyway, analysis paralysis, otherwise known as AP, is something I suffer from severely. I don't think you suffer from it as much as every player you play with suffers from it. Thank you. What it is, is when someone takes a long time on their turn because they are analyzing everything to the point of not doing anything. The clinical standard unit of time is long ass time. It's a long ass time? It's not a long ass time? Long ass time. All right, long ass time. There you go. There you have it, folks. Haley spoke up. She's a genius. It's fine. So (laughs) AP is, like I said, it's when someone's thinking everything through so much they do nothing. So it's like they're paralyzed in place. I have a problem with this. I also speak out loud while I do it. But I analyze every single move that I can make and start going through all the actions in my head. I go through everything that's possible on my turn until I find what I consider to be the prime route to take. The problem with this is it slows the game down. It's one person taking so long, everyone else then is starting to become disengaged usually, or they're starting to get frustrated by the time it's taking, or they start to forget what they're going to do on their turns because of how long it can potentially take. One good thing with this is at least that I notice when I'm taking too long, but I still have trouble coming out of it because I don't want to just make a random mistake or a random decision and it just be horrible. It's just kind of, it it feels bad, man, kind of thing. Do you kind of want to know what kind of happens in the brain? Go for it. So this is a simplified version. Gather round, ye young childrens. This is what typically happens whenever somebody is suffering from analysis paralysis. So you're sitting there playing your strategy board game there. It's your turn. You have a successful turn. Pass goes through player two, player three, player four. Lo and behold, it's your turn again. What happened? I wasn't listening. You wasn't (laughs) listening. You weren't listening to me? No, the, that's the, that's the yeah. thing. I wasn't paying attention. You weren't paying attention. So what happens when it gets back to you? You're not paying attention. And all of a sudden, you have this elaborate strategy you're trying to figure out. Trying to figure out, okay, what strategy did I have from last time? 
How can I continue that strategy? What do I need to do with the pieces in front of me? What do I need to do with the cards in front of me? What do I need to do with the everything that I have? You know, what do I need to do next? And you realize that you didn't spend the four and a half minutes that took the other players to plan their turn to play theirs. So now what's happening is that you're trying to figure out your strategy while all four other players are staring at you intently. And what happens? What emotion do you feel? Anxiety. Anxiety! Yay! So I don't know if you guys have ever taken a test you studied for all night long, studied for it for the last two weeks. Get in front of the test and what happens? Uh, ah, you forget everything. You forget everything. That's because generally, so your amygdala is really responsible for a lot of your emotion, your anxiety. When you're experiencing extreme anxiety, your amygdala is like, pew. And your prefrontal cortex, which is your decision-making part of your brain, Basically, simplified version, those things are inversely related. So whenever you're feeling really anxious, you can't think. So everybody's staring at you to make a decision. You're feeling really anxious. All of a sudden, you can't think. I'm going to tie in real quickly. If you haven't seen Haley's psychology talk from Gen Con, which is on rage quitting. I use my hands a lot. She uses her hands a lot. It's on YouTube. Just look up Malthouse Games or Psychology of Rage Quitting or uh, Psychology and Board Games and you'll find it. And she talks about this in a little bit more depth and relates it to to rage quitting and anger in board games rather than the anxiety directly. Rage quitting, rage, rage quitting. But as you would expect, the brain ties into everything. Continue. That's really all I had. That's why we we experienced it. Yeah. Okay, cool. So there you go. So basically, I get anxiety. It comes around to my turn because I have ADHD. And after it's my turn is over, I have a hard time focusing. Because you're focusing on that little fuzz that's in the vent. Yeah, or I look at my phone and that just goes down a rabbit hole of Twitter. Or Guys, did you know that turtles like to eat strawberries? I love turtle eating strawberry pictures. They're so adorable. <laughs> it but, worked. But that's what it is, is I get distracted easily. I get talking easily. I forget what I'm going for. forget what my strategy is. And then when it gets to my turn, I then have to analyze the entire board state, every player's board state, figure out what they're going for, what am I going for, what am I going to do for my strategy, and try to come up with everything and the best course of action in that moment, and it takes me minutes. And I really liked Lowlands. I really do. And I love playing board games with Delton. Like, no matter how much analysis paralysis he has, I always have fun playing with him. Yay. But, oh my god, this game. Delton had analysis paralysis out the wazoo, and it was only a two-player game. What's funny, too, though, is that I don't think this game's more difficult than... I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have more choices than Agricola. It doesn't have more... Uh, like in-head metagame sort of stuff, like Isle of Sky. It doesn't have, you know, the choices of cards to buy and paths to take and like clank. But for some reason, with five actions and three different value pawns to use on those actions, I have the hardest time making a goddamn decision <laughs> than anything else. And I don't know why, but I really enjoy the game a lot. I want to play it again. But it's one of those things where I have noticed when I take too long. It hits me. I feel it. I'm immediately like, all right, I'm taking too long. And then what emotion do you feel? I feel anxious, of course. And then I'm thinking, okay, I have to speed. What? How fast can I figure this out? How much can I look at the board and just figure out what I'm doing, where I'm going, what I should do next? Which increases what? Anxiety. Anxiety. And so there you go. I'm just basically a ball of anxiety sometimes with board games. But that's what I have to do is I have to look at it and go, okay, I have to, first of all, focus. If you want to not be that person with analysis paralysis, focus on what you're going to do before it's ever your turn. Now, I find this to be difficult because I'm always the teacher of games. So I'm always keeping an eye on everybody else's turns to make sure it's being done correctly. 
I also speak out loud when I take my turn to ensure I'm doing things correctly and everyone's keeping up. So I feel like that really hurts in terms of my decision-making process because I'm always making sure it's being done right, making sure everyone understands it, trying to explain little things as I go, and it pulls me out of my own focused headspace a lot. And a lot of what we other players who maybe not who maybe don't experience analysis paralysis to the extreme as Delton does, like we all have a little bit. We all have some of those turns that go a little too long. We start feeling anxious and hurt, dirt, 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 But for some of us who are not experiencing analysis paralysis at that moment, what we can do to kind of help the other person is not sing the Jeopardy song. So what happens when we sing the Jeopardy song, the do, 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 do. Then you pull them out of their head again and they're going to comment or they're going to call you rude, or they're going to say something, disengaging them from their thought process, which delays it further. And their anxiety is going to go higher. Yes. And everybody's staring at them. Yes. So if someone is experiencing analysis paralysis, especially if they experience it quite a bit, just don't call attention to it. Entertain yourself by engaging with the other people at the table. Don't look at your phone. Don't check your Twitter. It can wait the next 47 minutes until the end of the game. Just engage with other people at the table. And that way, the focus of the attention is not on that analysis paralysis person. So basically strike up a small conversation with your neighbor, a little bit of small talk. You can talk about, hey, you know, should we build the dike? Talk about the game, some of the actions you can do together. But not enough to where you neglect your own strategy and become the next person with analysis paralysis. Yes, exactly. It's a hard, it's a hard line to cross, but some people don't have that. And I actually read something that to me defined why analysis paralysis is so prominent in, in our gaming world. So I think it makes sense for me. What is it? It was essentially that our school systems teach you to be that way. Because if you get something wrong on a test or on a homework assignment, it's immediately wrong to the point of wrong, redo it all. It's not a lesson of, here, you missed this. Let's go over why you... It's not a very calm approach of figuring it out, breaking it down. It's more of, you missed it, now do it again. You don't get, to, you don't get a chance to mitigate your incorrect response. Exactly. And so our school system teaches us if we're not right the first time, then we're wrong and it's not okay. That's basically what we go through all through like elementary and high school and middle school and stuff. Now, college obviously is a little different than that. But if you go through high school and you get you know incorrect stuff on your math test, that's it. So if you mess up the first time, it's over. And I think that's what puts part of that in us that we want to analyze everything, we're afraid to make a mistake. Afraid to fail. Afraid to fail, even at a board game. And I think that's part of mine, is I don't want to mess up. I don't want to look and go, I'm a freaking idiot. I missed this entire thing. I could have done this. It was so easy. I should have done it. And I don't want to have that feeling of, I have messed up. And I think that's what it comes from for me personally. And I think a lot of people can probably attach onto that or um, find that to apply to themselves. Yeah, because I mean, we don't really play board games to lose. I mean, not necessarily that we play board games to win all the time. We play board games to have a good time. But if we were to win on top of having a great social experience with our friend, I mean, that's just extra. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's a good top shelf topic on analysis paralysis. Hopefully that helps a few people out, maybe. Just a side note, I sat on my hands because whenever I was going on my rant, I had this extreme urge to talk with my hands and Delton's already got onto me twice tonight for hitting the microphone. Yes, I'm trying to keep her calmed down. Now I just have to get her to quit yelling in the mic, which I will adjust. I get excited. I adjusted in post, but man, she yells in the mic a lot. Guys, she yells at me all the time. I don't know why. I'm just kidding. That's just kidding. Anyway, let's move on to the question so we can wrap this baby up. And, and so I can yell some more. And so she can yell some more. 
And now, join us for a Malthouse Games Podcast special bite-sized question. So for today's question, this is one that Haley really wanted to use, which is why we're using it, because I think it, it applies in this case, especially in reference to Lowlands and playing that. It is. Is there anything in a game, mechanic-wise, or theme-wise, or something that ties into that board game, that for some reason, even though logic tells you better, it frustrates you, it makes you mad, it makes you angry, it makes you upset, it irrationally sends you off in some direction of emotion? Is there something in a game like that? Haley, go ahead. Why, yes, there is. This is why I'm salty this week. Haley doesn't like that I flooded her sheep. Okay. (laughs) So, we're playing Lowlands, and throughout the game, I thought my sheep were safe. As long as I maintain this little wall, and even if the, the dike broke, then I would just lose coin. But no, I ended up getting one breach token because I was one point behind Delton in maintaining the wall. And guess what you have to give up? Not your money, not your points, but one of your sheep. I think what made her so mad about it is that I didn't finish the dike when I could have because the dike at that time was worth zero points for dike points. And if I let the dike flood the last time before the end, it would put the dike worth one point, which would put me one point ahead of Haley in that regard because she had nine and I had ten. She would also then take a token, which would make her lose a sheep, which would then put me four more points ahead of her. So I decided not to contribute as much as I could have in hopes that she either didn't or the card beat her. No, that's not why. I don't give a shit about the points. You're yelling in the microphone. No, that's not right. I don't give a shit about the points. What is it? Your sheep? You don't like your sheep? I don't like animals dying in board games. Now... Delt and I made up this thing where the sheep don't really die. They really float down they to live in a trapped. field in France. They flood out of the Netherlands and the floods run them into a river and they float down that river through Germany and over into France and they live in the high mountains or hills or whatever France has. And that's where they live out their life, eating baguettes and, and being grapes. French sheep. Izzy, I want to believe that, but it's like whenever you're your parents put down your first pet whenever you're seven and they're not emotionally ready to explain to you the concept of death. So they just tell you that your dog or your cat went to go live on your great uncle's farm who you've never met when really they put them down. Yep. So basically whenever this sheep, quote unquote, I had to give it up. So it quote unquote died. I got so upset. Logically, I know this is a board game. This is a wooden sheep. But just the concept that I had to pick up one of my sheep from my board and return it to the bag because theoretically it died because the wall was breached and I'm a terrible handler and I let this sheep down. The sheep has lived on my farm for the last six turns and all of a sudden I have let it die from a flood because I was neglectful and decided to make more sheep instead of providing the sheep safety from the levee. It just really tore me up. So anytime we play Agricola, which most of you will know Agricola is an Uwe Rosenberg game, It's one of our favorites. It's a game where you're farming. You're growing vegetables. You have cows, pigs, and sheep. In that game, you have to feed your family. So most of the time you go fishing, which I don't think Haley thinks about that, that you go fishing and get food. I I think you've gone fishing. I don't know if I've gone fishing. Because it's just food. It's the little plate tokens. I don't think I've gone fishing. Oh, you just get the quote-unquote food? Yeah. I have played Agricola Vegan, and I have won every time (laughs) but once. One time I lost to Mac. And I lost fair and well, except that, but I have never been able 
to feed my family, quote unquote, meat. I've never been able to take one of my cows from my pasture and turn it in for four food. Haley's never done it. I've done it in emergency cases. But I have also won every single time, but that one time I lost a Mac. That's true. Haley's always that way. So this really did not sit well with her whenever I ended up basically causing her to have one of her sheep float away down to France. And I know that it's illogical. I know this. Like, I am a rational human being for the most part. I like to believe. And so I know it's just like a stupid token you take off your board and that represents that you've lost, quote unquote, three points. But I had to sacrifice a sheep. And that was so sad. That was salty for a solid seven minutes after that board game was ended. She really was. She was very salty. So that's Haley's story of a board game mechanic or thing like that. I tried so hard to protect that sheep. Activating emotions. And there it is. In board games, I don't even want to live vicariously through board games and killing animals, man. That's true. I got problems. (laughs) That's okay. I can't think of anything, at least at the moment. I've been thinking about this all day. So I think this is just Haley's thing and probably some other people's as well. I'm going back to therapy. I guess the only thing I could think of is if a game has a historical theme and it has any inaccuracy that I know of. That's something that bugs me a lot. like Viking games. Vikings don't have dreadlocks. (laughs) Vikings don't have dreadlocks. They don't have horns on their helmet. They don't wear all black. Uh, Things like that. So that kind of stuff bugs me, but I don't think it's as extreme. But anyway, that's okay. We'll be fine. The sheep are back in the box. They're all there. We'll do it again next time, and maybe Haley will contribute to the dike more so it doesn't happen. I was one point behind you. I'm going to cut you. It's because you wouldn't let me help you. I know. I'm going to fight you. (laughs) It's okay. I think that's going to wrap up this episode, which I think is uh, running a little bit longer than normal. We got excited. We got excited. I really liked Lowlands. I tried to talk plenty about some of the decisions and things without going too crazy. But hopefully you get a good idea. We like Lowlands a lot. I have AP still. Haley doesn't like sheep dying. This is our episode. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to the podcast, episode number 24 of the Malthouse Games podcast. If you would like to like, share, and subscribe to us, we have a YouTube, which is Malthouse Games, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, all of that good stuff. If you could share this episode out and just say, hey, we like listening to these guys. They're kind of neat, I guess. That would be fine with me. If you could please give us a review on iTunes, five-star review, all that good stuff. It helps people find us a little more easily. That would be hella swag. I hate you for saying that. If you want to follow us on social media, we are at Malthouse Games on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you want to follow me personally, I am at Delton Brack on all of it. And Haley is at... S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-E-K, Squirrely Geek. If you have any questions you want us to answer on the podcast or any topics you would like us to cover, anything like that, please send us an email, contact at malthousegames.com. And I guess that wraps everything up now. So until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you guys next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.